This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome back to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, brought to you with the Jazz FM Business Breakfast. And now available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts, as well as online. I'm Johnny Hart. Each week we review the stories that made the business and market headlines, and it was yet another dramatic week. I tweeted about the payments, but they didn't come out of campaign. In fact, my first question when I heard about it was, did they come out of the campaign? Because that could be a little dicey. Mr. Cohen held guilty to two campaign finance charges, both for the purpose of influencing the 2016 election. We value their contribution. We want them to stay. It's inconceivable we would do anything other than make sure that they're legally in a position where they're secure to stay. There's absolutely no question that you're going to see EU citizens turfed out. Well, our regular Oanda market analyst Craig Earlham is back after becoming a dad and uh, he's not looking as bleary-eyed as uh, you might expect. (laughs) How are you? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. So far, I think I've got a good one, but uh, I keep saying to everyone, I think the bill's going to come due soon and um, I am going to be eating my own words, but so far, everything's going great. Experience tells me, don't count those chickens yet. But enjoy it while it lasts. And we have two for the price of one today, don't we, Craig? Delighted to say that Steve Innes, Oanda's head of trading Asia, live in our London studio, and you've been a bit of a globetrotter recently. You've uh, been in Singapore with us, in uh, Toronto, and now you're here in London. Yeah, it's great to be in London. It's, uh, it's a great reception at the Oanda offices, and it's uh, thanks for having me on the show today. It's a real pleasure. Craig, what was your market moment of this dramatic week, considering we're in the middle of August? And considering only a week ago we were looking at this week thinking it could be relatively quiet, it seems that quiet weeks are so hard to come by. Um, I mean, I think it's hard to look past the fact that we have now entered the longest bull run in history uh, in the financial markets. Now, naturally, that may give you this idea that the world is in a fantastic place, that economies right, left and centre are booming, that everyone who's anyone has a job, we're all well paid, wage growth is fantastic. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite paint that actual picture. Um, It may be the longest bull run, but it's not necessarily the strongest. But that's not necessarily a terrible thing. Um, But it is, like I say, it is the longest. So I think it is something we should be very positive about. The question that people are now asking is, if we're now in the longest bull run ever, uh, where is the cliff edge and how close are we to it? And um, to be honest, personally, I still think there is reasons to be optimistic about the economy. I think one of the reasons why we're in the longest bull run is because it's been built on very slow recoveries uh, and therefore lower levels of growth than we've become accustomed to in the past. But then it's hard to look past the um, the huge number of risk factors that there now are for the global economy. Either we're talking about trade wars, we're talking about the rise of populism, um, wherever that may be. We're talking about Brexit, we're talking about so many different issues that could potentially threaten the global economy. But Let's stick to the positives, and the positive is markets are doing very well, the economy's on the up, and fingers crossed uh, that can continue for some time to come. And that hugely long bull run has uh, obviously been backed up by massive amounts of QE, and then latterly uh, Trump's tax cuts. Steve, are there signs that uh, this is going to end any time soon, or do you think there's still a little bit more time for this bull run? I think there's a little bit more time for it. I mean, the... uh you know, corporate tax cuts are, have been quite significant. They've added quite a, a degree of profitability to uh, the companies in the U.S. Um, 
The Federal Reserve Board, although they're on a path of uh, hiking rates, they're not really going overboard or going too aggressive. This is keeping the uh, equity markets in good check. Bond markets aren't getting too out of hand. We haven't seen a press in the bond yields um, above uh, 3%. I think this all boils back down to the fact that there's a lack of inflation, and I think the Feds are also watching that very closely. And that lack of inflation gives them a little bit more room to run the uh, economy or run interest rates at a little cooler pace to try to accelerate inflation. I think traders and investors alike you're picking up on those overtones and I think that's why we're seeing the um, equity markets continue to uh, continue to froth, froth higher. Uh, certainly every Monday we walk in we we figure this has got to be the top at some time but even despite the uh, layers of bad news that uh, Craig alluded to just a minute ago there the market continues to go and buy equity so this seems like a very positive signal. And it's been decade long this bull run hasn't it really and uh, cast your mind back to the dark days of uh 2009. Did you think we were going to be here? Uh, no, not at all. I, I thought I thought it would be much lower. And, you know, one of the old things, uh, one of my bosses reminded me about the equity markets. He says, uh, no matter when you buy the equities, you know, for a fact, 10 years down the road, they're always going to be higher than the level you bought them. And I guess he even proved right looking back in 2018, although I disagreed with him at that time. Let's talk about the man of the moment, the man of every moment, really, Donald J. Trump. He actually talked about the stock market Uh, this week responding to speculation that he might be impeached and he warned that that move could really damage the economy and said a market crash uh, would make everybody very poor Um, it's a good line and uh, certainly it will spook some people but is he right I mean, he, he is great at the PR spin. I, th- I don't think we can deny that. But to be honest, I, I don't necessarily disagree with him. I think the markets probably would suffer in the near term. I mean, we, a president of a country like the US getting impeached is no small matter. And political instability and political uncertainty leading potentially to some form of economic uncertainty, yeah, that's going to cause a crash in the markets. I don't think this is personal to him. I think if Obama was impeached, the same would have happened. If George W. Bush would have been impeached before him, we'd have seen the same uh, as well. I don't think the markets are rallying and are at the levels they are purely because he sat in the hot seat. They're rallying they've got to where they are because we've had massive tax reforms, which, as Steve just alluded to, means we're seeing 20% year-on-year earnings growth for S&P 500 companies now for the first two quarters and expected to see the same for the next two quarters. We're seeing uh, people so optimistic in the markets right now because the economy is doing very well, and Trump has something to do with that. Some of his policies, the deregulation and things, have contributed to an already hot economy becoming extremely hot. So, while he has contributed to where the market is right now, I do think there would be a crash, a, a small crash in the near term. I do think there'd be negative implications. But then in the longer term, you could even say, well, that may even be more positive for the markets because the legacy uh, of Trump, which is regulation and tax reforms, would still very much be there. But the threat of a trade war may actually not be. So it could actually be beneficial in the longer run. So it depends where what time frame you're looking at it. I mean, Steve, do you actually think there would be a crash? I mean... Just because a president is impeached doesn't necessarily mean it can't be business as usual. Yeah, I think a lot has to come down with policy. But, you know, investor sentiment will shift. We'll certainly see a, a knee-jerk reaction if, if there is an impeachment, like we always see when po- political risk takes rises. a while, though, doesn't it? It does. But if you notice the market's reactions uh, when trading political risk, it comes back very quickly. So, in other words, in my opinion, um, sell-offs based on political upheaval tend to get faded by the market very quickly. And, and as you said, quite uh, rightly, Johnny, it's back to business as usual. But getting back to Trump here... For all his bluster and all his Twitter tantrums, I, I think it's really hard to argue against his economic um, proposals that he's put in place over there or 
economic uh, values he's put in place over the last year. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You just look at the U.S. economy. Retail sales is picking up. Um, people are spending when the retail when the U.S. consumer starts to open up their pockets. It makes the economy really churn. Employment's doing very very well in the U.S. I mean, perhaps they're still missing that inflationary spark. But if you look at the consistent run of economic numbers, there's really nothing to be negative, despite as I'm alluding to the Twitter tantrums or the more bellocious comments that he's coming out on, perhaps his strange immigration policies or whatever else you want to take into consideration. And it always has been the economy stupid, hasn't it, really? So looking towards those midterm elections, if American people are more buoyant, more optimistic about the, the dollar in their pockets, then they'll give him the boost that he needs to avoid impeachment. Yeah, well, that's the th that's the thought pattern here. But you know, obviously, as we approach uh, the midterm elections, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. This should probably temper market expectations somewhat. I think also, especially more so on the U.S. dollar. And I think if the U.S. dollar, given that it's quite overbought at the moment, we could see uh, the markets probably pull back on some of that positioning. Weaker dollar usually doesn't play out well for underlying assets in the U.S. And we could in theory see the equity markets do pull back ahead of that and certainly there might be some appeal for safe havens like gold may see a little spark again over the short term and perhaps bond markets yields would probably go a little bit lower just for that safe haven appeal but that's yet to be seen staying with the u.s those trade talks between the united states and china have ended with little progress in a week that has seen the trade war certainly uh, hot up between uh, the two countries. There was a White House statement uh, which said the talks had covered, quote, how to achieve fairness, balance and, and reciprocity in the economic relationship. However, there's no indication of any major breakthrough, is there, Craig? No, I mean, this, this was always going to be a long thought-out negotiation. I think we saw what happened with the EU last month uh, and hoped that maybe the US could make massive strides forward with China as well because I think that's your big stumbling block. If the US can find uh, some common ground with China uh, and avoid the need for further tariffs, then you suddenly think that any there's hope for us all. Um, the, the, this seems to be number one on the US's target list. Clearly, that's not so straightforward. And even looking back to last month, clearly the EU situation wasn't quite so straightforward because even this week again, Trump has said that they, at a rally that they're going to impose 25% tariffs on EU cars. So those negoti negotiations can't possibly have gone as well as the post-press conference uh, alluded to. We have to hope that there has to be a solution at the end of the day, but this is the two biggest superpowers in the world and neither wants to be seen uh, as weak uh, and both of them have some form of leverage and we have to see how much each of them are willing to stomach the, the disappointing thing I guess from my perspective is the people who are going to suffer most if this does escalate much further may not be the US and it may not even be China. You look at a number of these smaller uh, nations uh, in the APAC region, and Steve's probably more um, qualified to uh, to comment on this than I am, who rely on China as part of the supply chain for those products which do eventually end up in the US that could actually suffer uh, as much as anyone. And you look at the rest of the emerging markets as well and the impact that we've seen on the currencies there. Um, current countries with large current account deficits or with for FX debt, um, and these are the ones that are probably going to suffer first, and we're already seeing evidence of that. Yeah, we're start we've definitely seen a weakening in a lot of the uh, Asia-Pacific uh, currency markets because of the escalation in trade war. Obviously, most of these countries are really dependent on exports, whether it's into China or whether it's uh, into the U.S. The U.S. 
does take in a lot of goods and a lot of raw materials from from the relative uh, relative uh, relative small countries but obviously it's as how china moves as how the rest of that region moves and i i think the biggest fear right now in, in china is this uh, weakening yuan i i think uh uh, as we've seen historically, it does create a lot of capital outflows, and capital outflows are such a destabilizing fact for the overall economy. And we're seeing that play out on the equity markets in China, which have been tanking miserably over the past two months. So what is the PBOC to do? Um, well, we've reintroduced, what we think they've reintroduced anyway, is the counter-cyclical measures, which really is designed to curb outflows and to make it to make a make this a, a, a short point here what the counter cyclical measure is is just simply uh, a calculation of where they should be pegging the currency the next day remember the only allow the currency to trade within a specific wide band whereas the offshore market can trade in a much wider band so what they what they try to do is they try to temper the market's froth or the market's what they refer to as herd mentality by bringing the fix back lower the next day. So in other words, artificially strengthening the yuan when the herd mentality starts to take over. We saw that effect come into the market uh, overnight where the uh, dollar CNH dropped 250 pips in the blink of an eye. And I think this is a sign that they're saying, well, listen, we're not going to be using uh, the currency as part of this uh, trade war. And I think that's sort of offering an olive branch in a sense to the U.S. market saying, listen, we don't want to go down the path of a currency war. We want to see these things get settled. And I think this is very positive. And I think the cooler heads on the U.S., uh, mind you, we're not privy to these back backroom negotiations, but we can assume cooler heads are prevailing to some extent again the big telling tale will be the 200 billion if that actually goes through with a 25 percent coupon on it then that is going to be the real escalation and this is the issue that the market's really waiting on right now to see whether we go down that path and that could be a path that nobody really wants to go down so much to cover chaps uh, in, in this uh, friday podcast um but we may as well talk about those Fed minutes. Not a great deal in the minutes, really, to sort of uh, spark any massive conversation. What, what did you make of them? Yeah, I mean, the, the minutes themselves, we always hope they're going to be something of an event, and there's always the potential for them to be so. This month, I don't think there was anything too surprising in there. The central bank is feeling very bullish on the economy. They're hawkish on interest rates, and it looks as though we're going to see at least one, probably two rate hikes this year. I think when it comes to the Fed, um, it comes back to two things, though. And again, it was for a week that we were expecting to be relatively quiet, it does just make you realise that there's no such thing uh, in the current markets. Because with the Fed, people are more interested in what Donald Trump again had to say about the Fed this week, not something that he's done before. It's uh, not something that he hasn't done before, sorry. This is something that he's, uh, he's becoming quite famous for, in that he's criticising the Fed for raising interest rates and not helping him do his job better it's almost as if he doesn't understand what the job of the fed is i mean we we all know he does and we know what he's doing here but quite clearly the fed is there to stabilize the country to ensure that we are seeing full employment and that we are seeing price stability but it's how the fed responds to that because it it, it must be difficult to not um, feel the pressure of the president calling you out on the public stage and now we've got Jackson Hole at the end of this week and we are recording prior to that speech but we're going to hear exactly from the horse's mouth probably what he thinks of this it may not be part of his initial speech but I'm sure he's going to receive plenty of questions on what he thinks of Trump chiming in on his role. Steve very briefly um, we, we haven't had a chance to talk about oil because prices are up 
how much has that got to do with sort of belated lag over the um, Iran sanctions? Yeah, I think that's uh, all part and parcel to the whole deal here. And I think what's been holding oil prices back again is this uncertainty over the global trade wars. Obviously, that's going to play a quite negatively for the global growth scenario. And this is why we've seen gold, or seen oil come off uh, over the past little while. And when you compound that with uh, more uh, additional outputs coming out of the uh, OPEC nations, including um, including Russia, uh, this has sort of tempered uh, oil expectations over the short run. However, I'm still quite bullish on oil. Um, again, I'm very optimistic on these trade negotiations. I see trade negotiations going through. I see a continuation of the U.S. economy uh, picking up. But also I see the global economy starting to pick up also. I think there's signs that this global growth momentum is starting to going to kick in again, especially over in Europe. And I think this is just going to add appeal to the, to the underlying commodity markets, including oil. So, Steve, you're optimistic about the global economy and uh, what's happening in the USA at the moment. Let's turn to our little local difficulty uh, on this side of, of the pond. And uh, Brexit, of course, uh, an, another difficult week, really. Uh, the UK government published its no-deal Brexit plans. Uh, I'll, I'll come to you in a minute, Steve, but I actually... Craig, what, what do we actually learn, if anything, from those Brexit plans? I mean, I'd love to tell you I've learned a lot, but unfortunately I've actually learned very little and that will come as no surprise to anyone. Um, I, I can't help but just think this is part of the posturing, right? If you want to be taken seriously that you are honestly considering a no-deal Brexit as an option that's on the table with these negotiations and you're willing to follow this through and take it right up to the deadline, then you have to be seen to be pe preparing for it because if we uh, weren't, yeah. it's not serious. And we also have to show the British people that we're preparing for it as well. Exactly. Who's going to freak out more? Is it going to be the British people or is it going to be the Europeans? I mean, you have to assume that the Europeans don't take us seriously if we're not preparing for it. But equally, um, if we're threatening it and we're not doing anything about it, then you, UK businesses are going to be extremely uh, concerned. So this is almost like an administrative bluff. I, I can't help but feel uh, with regards to these negotiations. Take, take us seriously. This is something we're really considering, but ultimately desperately want to avoid. And interestingly, Steve, off air, uh, you told me that you don't actually think that Brexit is really going to happen. Are you willing to come out now and tell me why and what the plan is? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, I'm not as close to the news wires as you guys are in the UK here. He's but, making um, excuses but, now. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not going to make up an excuse, but I'll tell you why I don't think it's going to happen. I just think there's too much to lose on both sides of the equation, uh, both for especially um, uh, Europe. I don't think they realised the fact that the EU... The, so much financial business goes through this hub in London um, with the infrastructures in place right now. It's just not replaceable. Uh, it's it's one of these things, if you look at separations that have happened before, like between China and Hong Kong, actually that was an amalgamation, but when um, a lot of the banks had lost some of their, some of their rights, it still is the central hub of business in Asia. Okay, so we have to remember that when these centers are established, like Hong Kong, no matter how you change the the political structure, people still want to do business in this center. People will still want to do business in, in the in the UK. That's what I see. I don't see a win-win scenario on either side of the equation. What I ultimately see is a mess continuing on for a couple of more years. I eventually see it coming to another referendum, and when the other referendum comes, I think it's going to end up uh, a no Brexit. Craig. Yeah, I mean, I. I it I, I, I do think it's going to happen, uh, only because I don't think there's another going to be going to be another referendum. Because if you, there is another referendum and then we end up 
not exiting, then what's going to stop another referendum 2020, 2021, 2022? How long does this continue before you say this is the final referendum? And uh, So I think we're going to end up avoiding another referendum, but I, equally, as I said to you off air, I do agree with Steve in the fact that if we do get another referendum, and then in my view, no, not leaving, so remaining would have to be part of the vote on that, and whether it's not leaving or the deal that's been put on the table or not leaving the vote on the table and uh, a no-deal Brexit, then I think the remain vote would outstrip the other two purely because when this was one of the this was always one of the difficulties with the referendum, irrespective of which way you voted, remain was a very clear, one-sided, straightforward vote. It's the status quo and. Brexit was always a, a more a, 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 a more complicated option because people had different ideas in their minds of what a Brexit meant. You had the people who thought it was completely cutting off from the EU altogether, which is the complete hard Brexit option. And there was those who thought we could still maintain a close relationship with the EU uh, and still remain, maintain some of the benefits, get that £350 million a week back. And who knows what the actual Brexit will be, but... It's hard to see a deal that can be struck by Theresa May and her team that satisfies that 52% of Brexiteers because I don't see the 48% changing their vote if another referendum comes. So that's one of the reasons why I actually don't believe there should be another referendum because it creates more controversy than it does solve it. And nobody's going to be satisfied really, are they? Whatever the outcome, because even if you had a Brexit, the Brexiteers will say it's not strong enough. And, and vice versa. I mean, I remember, you're not old enough to remember uh, Mrs. Thatcher, Craig, but uh, there was his acronym. I've heard about her. Yes. <laughs> I'm quite a successful Conservative politician. Um, she had an acronym, TINA, it was. There is no alternative. I don't know if you remember that, Steve. But I do remember that. I'm, I'm thinking of TINA right now. I, don't, I can't think what the alternative to all this mess could be. No, I mean, I think, um, I think what we what we have to go through. We're going through the, almost the stages of grief, right? And I think the the important thing so we shock, have to anger, do anger, denial, bargaining, acceptance, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and year. I think we're we're coming towards the acceptance stage, no matter what you voted for. Whether you're well, we, we have to. We've got no choice. I mean, we're, mm. we're at this point now. Where I think we're in denial deal, still. I think we're still there, but we're coming towards acceptance. I mean, when the deal's struck. And we do exit the EU, and I still think that's going to happen. It's for all of us to just accept what it is, because. Ultimately, once we leave the EU, you can either accept it and move on and try and make the most of it, or you cannot accept it and spend the rest of your life being bitter and twisted and moaning and whinging and fighting. It's all for naught, because at that point, we've left the EU and we are where we are. And I think we just have to... And I, for one, I must say, I'm really looking forward to not talking about Brexit anymore once that happens. <laughs> I'm very far optimistic. more looking because it's been... I really hope that the the, the 20... The, I think it was 26th of June, 2016... 23rd of June. 23rd of June, 2016. Yeah. I, I was desperately hoping that that was going to be the last time the word Brexit was ever oh, going to be typed on my keyboard and how wrong I was. I'm afraid it's going to be news for a couple more years, so um, just dig in. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking a decade, actually, before we actually stop talking about it. And while you're here, Steve, I have to ask you about Australia. Yet another Australian Prime Minister has gone. Malcolm Turnbull, now replaced by Scott Morrison. Believe it or not, I counted. It's the sixth Aussie PM in eight years. How have markets taken this news? Well, it's interesting. The uh, currency markets, for instance, the Aussies really been looked upon as being the local whipping boy uh, for the past uh, several months, and I think that's really because of its proximity or it's being used as a proxy trade uh, 
of, for escalating trade wars. I think there's a couple of things about Australia in general, however, I think it's viewed more or less as being a little more than an asset bubble on top of an iron ore mine. So what I'm getting at here, wide, huge household debts supported by underlying commodity prices, which is iron ore. As iron ore goes, so does the, uh, so does the Australian economy. But overall, um, we've looked at the RBA. The RBA is being as dovish as possible. And the reason behind that is, is because of the high household debts. Do I think the economy is doing good? Of course not. It's doing it's doing very very poorly um, outside of the housing markets. People are struggling down there. Um, we see a little bit of uptick in retail sales, but I still view the Aussie dollar to go down deeper right now. We're trading just at the high 72s right now. I think I see, see the Aussie dollar trading as low as about 68, 67 cents. Uh, by the middle of 2019 based on a very dovish RBA and uh, commodity prices perhaps waffling based on uh, a slowdown in China. It's interesting that the RBA have tried to offset, uh, if I'm not mistaken, some of that dovishness this week by saying the next rate move will be higher, but they obviously didn't go in, give any form of time horizon on that. And just to tell you how the market reacted to that, it didn't. So in other words, uh, the time horizon is the key. There's not an interest rate hike priced into the market for the next uh, 18 months. So that'll be that gives you some indication. Whereas the uh, we should expect four more interest rate hikes from the U.S. over the next 18 months. And this is taken into consideration that there's been no movement on Aussie interest rates for a number of years already. The argument behind that was they didn't go as deep as the rest of the uh, the rest of the central banks. Remember, they kept their policy at one 1.5% while everybody went to zero. So therefore, they don't feel that they have to move up as aggressively as others. But still, that interest differential that the Australian dollar has been so supportive, of, uh, really supported the Australian dollar for so long, is starting to whittle. And I think that's just going to contribute to uh, to its demise over the next uh, next uh, four to six months. Um, we, we are running out of time. Let's briefly look ahead to what, if anything, major is going to be happening next week. We say this every week and then big stuff happens. Uh, Steve, let me start with you. I think I think it's just going to be the follow from the Jackson Hole. I think the market focus right now, at least on the currency markets, is going to be on uh, Jay Powell's comments. Um, my view right now is that uh, you know Trump came out with some bluster in the week trying to shift the Fed's uh, policy perception, i.e. keep the rates a little lower. There's no way to f- way a Fed chairman will actually come out and appease a president, regardless who the Fed chairman is. So I actually think there's a possibility could come out actually a little more hawkish. Uh, than the market's pricing and currently we're starting to see a little bit of pullback in the u.s dollar and that's simply uh, positioning driven the other thing we have to concern ourselves on the currency markets are coming to year end rebalancing and that could also weigh on the dollar because that's generally the trend that has occurred over the past uh, the past uh, few months uh, for for portfolio rebalancing so i think those Issues are going to be at the top of my, my my table, but I also I'm really keen to get the liquidity back in the market. Because generally, traders take the month of uh, August off, take a couple of weeks off. So liquidity in general in the market's been quite thin, and this is why we've seen some outsized moves on some of the underlying emerging market currencies of late. I think next week, once the deaths start to repopulate again, markets will start to get into a little bit of excitement. We should see some incredibly uh, we could see some incredibly uh, exciting markets next week. Craig. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's hard to look past the political situation. We look at the 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 data side, the central bank side, and yeah, you got the the aftermath of Jackson Hole, but there's nothing much else uh, that's on the agenda. You got a couple of pieces of data, I think US GDP and a bit of inflation data towards the back end of next week. The early part's going to be quite slow. We've got a bank holiday in the UK, and that 
as a major financial center obviously that does have an impact on markets so you i wouldn't get too excited about liquidity and all that jumping back just yet steve um i know you don't have one over in singapore on monday so uh, unfortunately you'll be back at your desk uh, it's hard to look past the political situation everything trump uh, it, it, everything he does, everything he says next week is going to be the biggest stories of next week. And when we're sat here next Friday, we're going to be talking about what Trump's done this week, who he's offended, who he's made happy, and what he's done right and what he's done wrong. And that's pretty much the the, the structure of the podcast we do every week. And these are unpredictable, so uh, I, I, it's almost to get to the point where we should probably think of scrapping the week ahead because come the next yeah. week, we're just so wrong about what actually yeah, is the main the, market uh, movers next week. It's actually quite embarrassing trying to forecast the uh, weekly currency movements. <laughs> to be quite honest honest with you it's almost like flipping a coin these days isn't it it really well, is i hope it makes great great <laughs> listening for any, for any of our subscribers and in fact if if anybody wants to come back to us uh with uh, some feedback it would be great to get it online wouldn't it oh, absolutely all feedback's welcome and if there's anything you want us to add drop whatever by all means let us know we're only here to try and provide some sort of information and uh, we want to make it entertaining for everyone sure sounds great guys okay steve innes craig Earlham, thank you very much for joining us this week Cheers. Thank you. That is Oanda Senior Market Analyst in London, Craig Earlham, and Oanda's Head of Trading Asia, Steve Innes, who uh, joined us today. Have a very, very good week. We hope you enjoyed this Oanda Market Insights podcast. Don't forget, it's now available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts as well, of course, as online. I'm Johnny Hart. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.